government. In the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think. Hello and welcome back to Behind the Headlines. It is July 2nd, just two days away from the greatest day on Earth, Independence Day. And we're back after a few weeks of not talking about the news to talking about the news. So we got a, a few things to catch up on. Um, in the studio today, we have Elon Martin. Hello. Joe Quinn. Hi there. Neil Bradley. Hello. And I'm Harrison Cayley. And I guess to just start out with, uh, last time, I believe, I believe it was three weeks ago, we talked about the breaking news at that time, which was the Gulf Arab state, um, gang up on Qatar, which has been going on for the last three weeks. So immediately after that, or, well, not immediately, actually, it took about two weeks, I think, before any of the countries essentially blockading Qatar, including so Saudi Arabia, Egypt, United United Arab Emirates, which other ones? There's a few others. Um, released their, essentially their list of demands, which... Um, their ransom Qatar, demands. <laughs> yeah, their ransom demands. If you want your country back, you forgot Mauritius. Well, oh, yeah? and the Seychelles, oh. the, coalition, the coalition of the Allah Akbar's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, uh, well, anyways, they released their list of demands, and, of course, they were so uh, over-the-top and ridiculous. Essentially, they amounted to um, turning Qatar into basically a Saudi vassal, basically saying that your foreign policy will now be controlled by us. You have to shut down Al Jazeera, your main, main media outlets, you know, um, along with, you know, 11 other ridiculous, well, not some not so ridiculous. I mean, of course, anytime you tell a, a country they shouldn't sponsor terrorism, that's uh, probably a good thing. But then again, most countries do. So it's kind of just a... Well, depends who's saying it, right? Depends who's saying it. Yeah, mm-hmm. when, the, when the country's saying it is also a major sponsor of terrorism, then it comes across as a tad hypocritical. <laughs> and the other thing is, and for God's sake, stop making friendly overtures to Iran. Yeah, that was the main mm. one. That was the main reason, right? Mm-hmm. Shut down Al Jazeera, get rid of the, the Turkish troops, and mm-hmm. yeah, stop being friendly towards Iran. But that's really what it's, it's about, mm-hmm. mainly. Yeah. And Qatar essentially uh, said, uh, sorry guys, no, we're not going to listen. They said no, and we, yeah, you know, well, since the initial blockade and list of demands and uh, bizarre series of statements from the Saudis as to why, (laughs) they've pared it down to something more reasonable sounding, but it's still insane. Um, Since then, they've given an ultimatum. I mean, they've used the term themselves. 
<clears throat> and Qatar just said nobody gives ultimatums. Well, they do, in fact, but they shouldn't. They said, we be sovereign. You can't be telling us what to do. And we have no fear of any military threat. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, what, I didn't read the details of this ultimatum. Like, did they give a time limit? And, um, 12 days. They, 12 days. Did they say what they'd do if the ultimatum wasn't met? If you want to see your puppy again, <laughs> you've got 12 days to pony up the cash. Uh, no, they no. didn't. The, 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 it's just a hollow kind of threat in a certain sense. You know, they tried to blockade. Apparently, Iran was sending um, one ton of food per day mm-hmm. to to Qatar. They should put wire in front of them. Can we clarify what Harrison? Are you, are you pronouncing it correctly, and we're pronouncing it incorrectly? He's pronouncing it the the, the official uh, Qatar jihadi way. I mean, Arabic way. Are you guys back? We're back. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can hear you. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, we cut off before we, we could cut it off before we, uh, <laughs> before we finished our point, which is that we prefer to use the English language version of that Arabic word, Qatar. Q-A-T-A-R, Qatar. From this moment hence, we will be using. That's, well, well I'm going to add that as one, I'm going to add that as one of the demands. On this <laughs> 13th demand. Stop saying Qatar. Unless you put wire in front of it. So where are we now with uh, with this whole situation? So for a while there was that blockade, but then Iran and I think Russia also uh, delivered some uh, food and humanitarian aid. Uh, not humanitarian yeah. aid, but supplies. Basically. Right. The Iranians were delivering one ton of food per day. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the Turks... I don't think the Russians were doing much, but the Turks uh, decided they had a small military base in Qatar and they sent an extra few thousand troops or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they got a bit of support and that support was very indicative of what the whole problem was about, which was, you know, Iran starts to send one ton of food per day to Qatar because of the blockade and um, it was obviously that Iran was <laughs> the primary problem there and the Saudis had kind of uh, said as much, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, because although it's quite uh, kept quite quiet, there's a there's a definite sense that uh, Qatar was um, leaning towards, in, in very practical ways, leaning towards uh, kind of Iran and you know, mending ties, I suppose, with Iran, having previously been in the Saudi-Israeli U.S. kind of camp, uh, mending ties with Iran um, and doing deals with Russia. Um, I think it was 20% of Rosneft last year. Late last year, that the Qatari, basically Qatari royals, bought 20% of um, of Russia's state-owned gas company, and um, I think it it basically comes down to energy. This whole thing is all about really, as we've said many times in the past, this whole thing is all about the control of energy resources. Everything, everything since actually and previous to 9/11 has been about energy sources in the Middle East, particularly, but also in terms of how they uh, would influence the whole geopolitical chessboard in Eurasia and how that would work to the detriment or, or the benefit of America and, or Anglo-America, let's say. So it's uh, that whole big game was being played and has been being played. I mean, it was laid out in um, in 1996 in a PNAC, or not PNAC, um, 
kind of like a neocon document called a clean break, something like a clean break, a strategy for securing the realm. Let's use the word realm. This is 1986. It was basically what has happened since then, you know, with a few fits and starts in between, but that's basically where they've gone. Iraq, uh, Syria containing Iran, you know, pushing back Russia, all that kind of stuff. It didn't specify Russia at that time, but <clears throat> it seemed to have been, uh, maybe Russia wasn't really in 1996. Russia wasn't a big, uh, didn't loom very large. They thought it had, they had it, uh, that, that sealed up. Um, but, uh, Russia came, became <laughs> a big problem on top of the, those existing problems that they identified, uh, which was, yeah, controlling the Middle East in, per, in perpetuity for uh, for Western Western powers. And um, the, yeah, Iran, uh, in, the, in the most recent thing with Qatar and Iran, uh, they share this uh, big um, natural gas and oil uh, field below the Persian Gulf. But more than half of it is in, Waters, Iranian territorial waters. Total France, French's total oil uh, oil company signed a six billion dollar deal to. You know, they inked it, inked the deal with uh, with Iran to develop that gas field. And the problem is that it's so it's a gas field that's shared by Qatar and Iran under the Persian Gulf. And the Iranians call it North Dome. The, Qataris call it South Pars, whatever. And for the Qataris, it makes sense um, to to do a deal with Iran in that sense and be more friendly with Iran because Iran um, has other, you know, Qatar. All of Qatar's income come, Qatar's income comes from this gas field, you know, a liquefied natural gas field, um, and has and they've been exploiting it for quite a long time to to, to some extent, but it's you know nowhere near what its, its potential. But Iran has a lot of other oil fields and gas fields um, in its territory, and it's a more lucrative um, prospect for Western companies. So Western companies are going to be looking at uh, Iran more so. So, and, and that was evidenced by today that uh, French Total Company signing this deal to explore uh, Qatar's, or sorry, Iran's section of the of the of the gas field under the Persian Gulf. And, and the problem for Qatar is that gas Liquefied is uh, um, it's liquid. It moves. So while the boundary of this gas field is defined by their maritime borders, if uh, as Iran starts to starts to extract from its side, gas tends to flow. Gas doesn't uh, apparently gas liquefied gas underground doesn't respect human demarcated borders. So as it would draw from its side. Of the gas field, then gas from Qatar's side would flow into that just kind of naturally, you know. So it's not exactly split. You can't really split the gas field in that way. So it makes sense for both of them to strike a deal. And so the, the Qataris have been doing that. And of course, that's like a red rag to a jihadi bull for the, for the Saudis, you know. Uh, and they're very unhappy about that. And of course, uh, the Americans being in bed with the Saudis are very unhappy about that. And the Americans have for a long time, like I was saying, been um, focused on containing Iran because if Iran kind of breaks out and forms allegiances with, like, for example, Iraq and Syria and even Turkey. Um, well, it's kind of the prognosis for that is that's the death. That's the end for the Saudi head choppers, basically. Um, and with that would go. America's influence and the petrodollar probably. So this is all 
you know, the big scary future looming for, for them and why they're so desperate to do something about it. And Israel obviously has its, has a major stake in it as well because, you know, Israel owns all of the Middle East, uh, or so they think. The only democracy in the Middle East and, uh, they're there to civilize everybody and, uh, their plan has been just basically to, you know, regime change or anybody who doesn't agree with them, uh, get rid of them in one way or another. So Israel's very much uh, been, a, been on the anti-Iran stick for, as you know, for probably, probably 10, 15 years at this point. You know, they've been the one who've been screaming most about Iran for so long. Uh, and that's because Israel has most, in a, in an exist, in a really kind of physical existential kind of way, they have a lot to fear from Iran as well. Um, so that's more or less kind of what's going on. That's what ISIS is about. Um, it's interesting to note that uh, ISIS is a Sunni, Sunni group, Sunni uh, Wahhabi kind of uh, a group that espouses radical Sunni interpretation of Islam, which on the first first and foremost, the main enemies of, of them of, of that ideology would be the Shia, right? They would be very much radical. Uh, Sunni group, uh, which would be anti-Shia and guess who Shia? Well, Shia are the Iranians. Um, so ISIS somehow just managed to appear after 10 years of the Iraq, uh, US invasion occupation of Iraq. Somehow ISIS managed to appear with this very convenient agenda to kill all the infidel Shias, basically, you know. Mm. Uh, which was really convenient for oh. the people who wanted to get rid of Iran, which is Israel and the USA. So, you know. There's an, there's an, there's an, the Saudis and the Iranians see themselves, and they are, as more Asian mm. and Turkic, mm. frankly, white in many respects, um, whereas... Okay, so go ahead, Neil. Well, this explains why Trump had to swallow everything he said about Saudi Arabia while campaigning to, on his first foreign visit, go right into the heart of jihadistan and do the sword dance with the Saudis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is, the, he he has no choice, right? Right, well, he has no, I mean, he campaigned and on, I don't understand, he campaigned on, you know, an anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant uh, kind of rhetoric or, or bias. And, uh, and then one of the first things he does when he becomes president is go and hang out with the Saudis and hold that kind of, uh, Sauron's, uh, orb, you know, uh, the Palantir and, and try to look into the future with them. And, um, <laughs> he, uh, so, so yeah, a lot of people are probably a bit, uh, confused about that, but, uh, he's very, he, he realized that he has to be, uh, he has no choice but to be, um, uh, best friends with Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia is historically the, the country that uh, props up the American dollar and props up, you know, maintains the petrodollar and to a large extent maintains American uh, um, prowess and hegemony in, in the world, you know. I think what's going on in Syria is obviously connected to it as well. I mean, the guitar, an ultimatum, that's kind of, you know, brinkmanship stuff do it or else. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the urgency is that the situation in Syria is is, is sort of settling into uh, well, the end of ISIS. Uh, the Iraqi government this week declared ISIS is finished. Well, Neil was making the point that uh, 
Qatar and Saudi Arabia and, and probably a lot of these other nations in the, the Arab Emirates were on the same page, uh, in overthrowing Assad and supporting and, uh, and kind of, uh, uh, propelling this ISIS force forward and destabilizing Syria so that they can uh, oust Assad and gain access to Syria as a means to put in their own uh, pipeline, um, which Assad prior to that had said he wasn't going to do. Mm-hmm. And also prior to that was on fairly good terms with everybody in the Middle East uh, and the U.S., so, um, as Joe said a little while ago, this really is, uh, you know, it's all about the energy, stupid. Uh, you know, it's like, it's the economy, stupid. Um, and, uh, it seems to me that Saudi Arabia is vilifying and demonizing Qatar at this point and, uh, implementing this blockade and, and listing their demands is this kind of, uh, hysterical blame game, you know, reaction, like we've got to do something. Okay. Let's blame Qatar. Yeah. We'll, we'll say that they are responsible for, for supporting terrorists in the Middle East. And, uh, and maybe we'll get some leverage over them. And really it's just this kind of desperate attempt to gain control over something, uh, anything when, the Syria project has been failing so badly over the past few years. Um, we read about it all the time now. Russia, uh, um, Iran, Hezbollah, and, and Turkey have pretty much uh, taken control of the situation. Um, and that seems to be the, uh, the, the realization that that's finally beginning to set in. Mm-hmm. So the way I see it, what's been going on is because uh, to kind of tie a few of these things together is that because of the um, the kind of stunning advances of the Syrian army with help from Iran and Russia and Hezbollah, it's in a they're in a situation where now that the that whole Syrian regime change operation is kind of looking to be not. well, it, it's not looking like it'll turn out to be a success for uh, all the people that were sponsoring all these terror groups. Then, on the one hand, like Elon just said, it gives uh, an excuse for for Saudi Arabia and primarily to come up with a scapegoat, in this case, Qatar. But also, um, I th- don't think we should ignore that there. it's not as if um, all these Arab states are like, a, you know, a monolith or just all, you know, totally on the same page about everything. There are always disagreements and, uh, you know, rifts that are only held together by certain projects. So in this case, now that the, the, the Syrian operation isn't going to be a success, it gives the opportunity to go after Qatar. And in that sense, I'd think that, um, you know, they're, they're, they probably had Good reasons, not good in the sense of, you know, legitimate reasons, but um, actual goals that they wanted to accomplish by going after this country. So and there there have been rumors um, since the imposition of the blockade about um, certain kind of behind the scenes that have been going on. Like there's this one paper or one story going around in um, kind of Middle Eastern outlets that 
Saudi Arabia had actually planned a coup and that it fell through. Um, the story says from U.S. intelligence, um, someone had implicated uh, Eric Prince of Blackwater fame and that this coup didn't go through. And then this blockade with the with the demands was kind of a plan B operation. Well, we didn't get our coup, but we're going to go ahead with doing something anyways. So they so they went ahead with this. And if that's true, that might explain why it just seems to be such a shoddy effort um, that doesn't. I mean, you look at it and and it, it's really unrealistic what they're asking and they don't really seem to have accomplished very much. And they don't seem that they will be able to accomplish very much at all um, because it just and on top of that, like we said three weeks ago, it just pushes Qatar into further into the arms of Iran. And we've seen that with with Iran making statement, statements um, backing up Qatar and even, like Joe said, sending, you know, tons of food. And we've had similar statements coming out of Russia, Russia saying they'd be willing to to send humanitarian aid so far. That's been it hasn't necessarily been rejected, but it hasn't been accepted either. Uh, Qataris have been saying, uh, well, we don't need that right now. We're fine. So they're kind of. They're not going all in on the uh, kind of ties with Russia front, but they're fine with um, kind of solidifying ties with Iran and Turkey. Because, again, if we look at the Turkish angle, immediately after this, Turkey said, uh, well, the Turkish parliament kind of really quickly pushed through um, legislation, I think I think it was, to um, increase the number of Turkish troops stationed in Qatar. And they have arrived, um, I believe. So all this is going on. And also to get into a, a bit of the background on the, like the disagreements between, um, these countries, Qatar has been one of the, if not the biggest sponsor of the Muslim Brotherhood. And that might explain why Egypt has gotten on board because, um, there was basically the Mu- Muslim Brotherhood color revolution several years ago, which was then overturned and uh, from, with a military coup. And so there are some disagreements over how much power uh, the, these various, uh, you know, Arab and North African countries want to give to the Muslim Brotherhood. It's kind of like which which terror groups are we going to support and which ones aren't we going to support? It's it's not as if they're just, they, you know, they're they're all identical. Um, there are kind of power games that go on um, with these governments and with all these groups. and. So there's that to consider, um, but it's hard to know, um, of course, because it's it's there's all kinds of stuff going on with all these behind the scenes deals and support for for these various organizations. But uh, I think I think it's safe to say that there's probably an element of the kind of opportunistic scapegoating um, as a result of the failure in Syria. And, um, kind of settling old debts and, or, um, yeah, settling old debts and also, um, the big one which we mentioned, which is Iran, because Saudi Arabia, just like Israel, is one of the, the biggest anti-Iranian, uh, countries in the region. So I think there's just all that to consider. Now, right. I, yeah. Are you guys back? Let's see how the connection is. Yeah. It, it should be. A bit better now. We're gonna try and do something even a bit, a bit a bit better in a second. But um, okay. Yeah, pretty much everything you said is uh, is the case, and I'm not sure if people heard what I was saying earlier on. But um, 
did you guys hear what I was saying about uh, about Iran and the fact that it's basically always mainly been about Iran? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You heard all that, yeah. Um, and if if you look, it's it's just interesting to see that the, as Neil was saying about ISIS is uh, losing territory, and there's a lot of sounds going on going around in the media about ISIS kind of on its last legs and stuff. And and as that starts to happen, uh, the U.S. kind of ramps up the the chemical weapon threats and stuff against Syria, you know. So as uh, uh, I mean, is that a, is that a coincidence? You know that uh, I mean, it points directly to to whose side the U.S. is on here, effectively, you know. And I mean, it also, I mean, it's quite. I think there's quite there's a whole structure behind all of this, um, as it has been in, in in other conflicts around the world, to do with uh, kind of paramilitary death squad type forces that have been used by the U.S. I mean, it's no. It's no, uh, it's not um, a mystery or not a, not a revelation. Shouldn't be anyway that uh, the U.S. has supported kind of death squad mercenary type groups in particularly in South America for for you know over the course of the 20th century, um, and and how they how they go about that is obviously veiled in secrecy and the people they use are very kind of it's, it's irregulars and stuff. Although they do use. Very often use former military personnel to to organize them, but and more recently they use kind of mercenary type, you know, Western mercenaries like you mentioned, uh, guy Eric Prince and his uh, XXE, whatever it's called, his mercenary company, which uh, a few, uh, I'm not sure when exactly, a year or two ago he set up. Uh, apparently they set up a new kind of training ground or base that company did in the United Arab Emirates. Um, so that that's a big kind of the background to all of this and how that kind of thing operates. But of course, I mean, you could go back further to, you know, um, to the Russian Afghan war, um, and the recruiting of, uh, you know, the, the, the video tapes that you can still see of, uh, of Brzezinski, RIP. Is he dead yet? He's mm-hmm. dead. He's only dead. Yeah. I get them. Him and Soros and Kissinger. Uh, all kind of just meld together for me into one kind of male crone, you know, <laughs> uh, male political crone. Uh, anyway, um, you see videos of him talking to the jihadis, you know, um, and other personnel, uh, US personnel, uh, government person, personnel talking to uh, hordes of Taliban slash whatever jihadis in the, in the late 70s and early 80s in Afghanistan, you know, saying our fight is your fight and, you know, this is your home, you know. So... You know, the U- U.S. has very frequently found uh, ideological kind of uh, brotherhood, let's say, with with extreme radical elements of Islam going back 40 years. Uh, they've done the same in terms of the level of extremism with uh, groups in South America, you know, who were extremist groups in South America of one bent or another. It didn't matter what ideology they... Well, I'll try to... Finish Joe's point. Well, <laughs> well, I think he just he just made it that this is a. It's just a historical kind of continuity that has gone on for like a full generation now. Well, more than one generation, but if we if we take it from Afghanistan, then it's just been more of the same. Let's see. Looks like Joe's back. You guys back? Yes. Okay. Finish your point. Were- Back for good now. Uh, where did I end? You were just talking about Afghanistan and uh, Brzezinski with the Taliban and Mujahideen and 
the policy of supporting death squad death squads kind of all over the planet. Right. And if they found uh, common cause with extreme yes. Uh, so they found common cause with extreme uh, groups of whatever bent as long as uh, as long as they would do what the US wanted them to do which uh, safeguard American interests in whatever part of the world. Um Oh, yeah. In terms of ISIS, ISIS fits into that, fits into that category, you know, I mean. Well, just, just to expand on that point a little bit, um, you know, the, the, what's being described here, uh, is the kind of probably one of the biggest, uh, if not most dangerous, um, uh, manifestations of manufactured uh, terror and using um, large bodies of, of groups of people who've been uh, ponderized and, and, um, and politicized and, uh, and um, made into extremists for a particular idea in order to overthrow a government that the U.S. deems unfriendly to its interests or to freedom and democracy, quote unquote. Um, you know, we're seeing this right now play out in Venezuela to some degree. Uh, a good argument can be made for the fact that uh, the opposition to Nicolas Maduro's uh, government, which is a continuation of Chavez's government, is is probably not handling uh, things optimally. At the same time, you have um, people inside of uh, the, um, uh, the the various institutions of, of Venezuela, uh, the Guard, um, various other kind of uh, parts of the government that have been bribed and uh, and influenced by the CIA and other U.S. agencies uh, to instigate chaos. Uh, there was a story yesterday of how the opposition uh, basically tried to burn down 50 tons of food in a food center in Venezuela. Um, and this is right out of uh, Operation Phoenix or Project Phoenix, uh, which is uh, something that's been described here on the show previously and in articles on SOT, uh, where, where the CIA messes with the infrastructure of a particular country that they've targeted uh, for for destabilization and basically messes up everything. Uh, so and it makes I mean, if you just look at it on the surface of it, you have a you have a, the opposition. Why would they do something so destructive as to destroy a, a food supply center in Venezuela if, as they say, they want to make things better and and want to uh, want things to run better. You don't make things run better by destroying things. Um, so this is this is a right out of the CIA playbook. And, uh, you know, so what do we have now? We have Venezuela. We have um, we have Ukraine. Uh, we have Syria. Uh, we have. Attempts being made within Russia and Iran to uh, politically destabilize the situations there. 
using all kinds of, you know, from soft power to violence and extremism, you know, it's, it's this, it's this monolithic and ruthless conspiracy, as JFK would say, to, um, one way or another, find a way to turn these countries into either vassal states or failed states of the U.S. empire. Uh, and it's happening more or less globally. Well, maybe just to move on a little bit, um, maybe we can get back to, to Venezuela in a bit, but just to finish up on the part of the Middle East equation, just after the uh, Qatar blockade, there was essentially a Saudi palace coup because the um, the heir to the kingdom was basically ousted from his uh, airship, <laughs> airhood, what's the word? And um, Prince Salman took his place. And so Prince Salman is, of course, the creepy looking guy who I believe he's been kind of acting like a defense minister. He's it's been, basically been his war in Yemen, and he's kind of been for uh, for the past several years kind of increasing in prominence in the the Saudi um, I would well government, but monarch monarchy dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And so there are rumors that the the previous heir prince has been kind of locked up on his uh, military base. Because, um, well, it's, it's like you watch any kind of movie or you read history about the way monarchies work and the and especially in one like Saudi Arabia, where the royal family is so huge and there's a, a long and complicated line of succession where because of what like the 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 first Saud like 100 years ago had like, you know, 50 wives and thousands of children and grand, grandchildren or something like that. I may be exaggerating, but um Something like that. And so the line of succession <clears throat> is kind of complicated. It hasn't, they've, they haven't al- always followed their kind of written rules on, on how it should work, but, um, it is kind of big news and coincidental at the same time that this happens right at this, mm-hmm. at this time that Salman is, is heir to the, to the kingdom. And there, uh, there have also been rumors. It's hard to tell how much of this is just, um, kind of di- disinformation. Um, put out, but there have been rumors that the the reigning king has is kind of like going senile and is basically not really running the country. It's been Salman kind of doing it by proxy this whole time for the last couple of years. So um, it's just it's interesting the timing and the fact that uh, he kind of managed something within the the kind of um, that whole group to because you need support right when you're when you're in a system like that, you need to have um, people within the system that will support you um, basically kind of taking the, taking the throne for yourself. Well, it's kind of game of Thrones type stuff, but yeah. Um, did you guys have any, any thoughts on Salman's rise to airhood? Mm. Um, the house of Saud is freaking out because mm-hmm. The rats are jumping. Qatar is jumping the ship. And they, by the way, they don't see what's going on in Syria as them losing it. They just see it as the next hurdle to be overcome. Um, as far as they're concerned, it's still game on. 
the the Russian foreign ministry this week warned that they expect a U.S.-led intervention in Syria to be imminent. But it's serious enough for Maria Zakharova to get up and say that they're about they are in the process of using another false flag chemical weapons attack um, campaign in the media to justify an imminent intervention of some kind. She didn't specify. Of course, we've got to say, well, hang on, what what can the Americans really do? I mean, well, this is this is another thing. The the U.S. shot down a Syrian jet just about ten days ago. That was actually the fifth such incident in the last month or so, where they directly targeted Syrian forces. Uh, different from last. Oh, really? They were Syrian? Oh, we thought it was ISIS. Now they're like, yeah, so, so. So it's, it's game on in the sense of hot war. Um, at least it appears that way. Uh, after that jet was shot down, the Russian uh, defense ministry said, and I quote, all flying objects, including planes and drones of the International Coalition, that's USA, detected west of the Euphrates, will be followed by Russian air defense systems as targets. Now, I read a New York Times commentary on this, speculating that this is just more Russian posturing. <laughs> we'll see about that. Um, it went on to further clarify U.S. strategy and the Saudi strategy in Syria right now. This is a quote from the New York Times. Syrian forces and their partners are aiming to take the oil-rich Deir al-Azhar pro- province, that's b- bordering Iraq, rescue a Syrian military garrison that is surrounded there, and establish a supply corridor that runs from Syria to Iraq and, comma, eventually Iran. That's where Iran ties back into Iraq because they're they're paranoid about Iranian influence, which they have wittingly gifted to Iran. First, by destroying Iraq in the 2000s, destroying Syria, they've strengthened Iran's hand. And they're trying to undo something of their own doing. Yeah. Well, just getting back to uh, Zakharova's statement, uh, there was um, quite a bit of news um, when Sean Spicer of the White House came out with a statement stating that, uh, you know, this very vague kind of, well, you know, we might have some information suggesting that maybe there's a possibility uh, that there's data indicating that, uh, you know, Bashar al-Assad might uh, commit another act of uh, chemical warfare aggression against his own people. And, um there's been a lot of uh, information since then to suggest that one of the reasons why that statement was even made uh, was Trump basically doubling down on his um, on his assertions about Assad chemically bombing his own people after this article by uh, Seymour Hirsch came out. Uh, showing uh, quite strongly that um, there was no uh, chemical attack that justified the um, the tomahawk uh, tomahawk tomahawk thank you missile attack by Trump uh, just a couple of months ago um, and so that this was a kind of distraction of some kind and and there there isn't in fact uh, any kind of 
plan to to aggress again against Syria on the part of the U.S. Uh, whether that's true or not, completely is hard to say. At the very least, it's, it was a, a very destructive statement because it kind of um, gives the green light in the minds of the jihadis on the ground there in Syria to uh, try and engineer uh, another uh, attack on Syrian civilians that can be used to uh, justify or, or shift blame and um, demonize Assad. Mm-hmm. Well, that was kind. Of, that was an interesting story because Sean Spicer comes out and says that there's you know, intelligence that they've seen that um, Assad. Well, it was it was kind of vague the way he said it. The the implication was that um, they they saw evidence that Assad was again uh, planning to um, to launch another chemical attack. The way it was actually said, though, is that they've seen activity similar to the activity they saw before the previous chemical attack. Mm-hmm. Now we know that there was no previous chemical attack. It was a it was a standard um, just Syrian air force attack on um, you know rebel held territories. Now uh, um, the the revelations from Seymour Hirsch, um, you know, we can't. Of course, we can't verify them, but the story that he tells, which which he gets from from his sources, is that this was a, a special um, kind of pretty um, pretty important mission or operation that the Russians had gotten intelligence that there was a kind of like a high level uh, Al Qaeda meeting going on in Kanshekun at this location, and that they we'd already known the the next bit that they had told the Americans about it beforehand. Now, what the, the, so what Seymour Hirsch says is the reason they told the Americans, they basically said, okay, we've got intelligence that there's this meeting going on. We're planning, we're getting, the Syrians are going to bomb it. Um, and they use the deconfliction line for that, basically saying this is the, you know, all the details. We're going <clears> to <throat> launch against this target at this time. So, you know, just so you guys know. But the, one of the interesting things that Seymour Hirsch says is that they basically said, if you guys have, you know, anyone, any kind of agent attending this meeting, um, you tell them not to attend. And, mm-hmm. and that's, I mean, that's, that sounds really kind of conspiratorial, but it's actually pretty standard. Like everyone has, even if, even if, um, any, even if we assume governments aren't like controlling terrorist organizations, they still have moles and, you know, agents with, within them. We can go further than that, of course, but, at least on the surface level, that was the that was the gist of this phone call. That if you guys have any of any any of your sources of intelligence in going into that meeting, tell them to, tell them not to go. It's kind of like a you know spy courtesy uh, between Russia and the states. So the Americans knew all about this attack. They knew it was when it was going to happen. And apparently the Russians had provided the Syrians with uh, like a laser guided um, bomb, essentially, so a mm-hmm. high grade military weapon that this that they don't usually provide for the Syrians. The Russians themselves will use them, but they <clears throat> they don't um, they're not in the habit of providing these high level uh, munitions to the Syrians. So the Syrians launched this attack and um, and it, but it was a standard attack, a standard missile. And that is that's kind of cut and dried according to Seymour Hirsch. Like everyone knew it. Even the Americans knew that. And if there was any kind of chemical um, thing going on there, it would have been just like the Syrians and the Russians said. They launched a normal, you know, regular type of munition that could have um, could have destroyed some kind of chemical 
weapons storehouse in that area. And just from the, even from the, the propaganda videos that came out after the attack showing the, the fallout from it, um, even then it, it wasn't a, a huge attack. If this, if this was an actual, you know, chemical weapons warhead, um, it would have killed hundreds and thousands of people. Um, but it didn't. It looked, it, 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 what you actually saw kind of more supported what the Syrians and Russians said happened. But anyways, so, so when, when, when Sean Spicer says they saw similar movements, uh, with the Syrian military, well, you'd see the same things on any Syrian, uh, operation, right? You'd see them plan, you know, bringing the warheads to the ship, to the, to the planes and them taking off. That's all you'd see because that's all that's going on. So it's really, it's kind of revealing that that's what he said because he's, he was essentially saying, we saw the Syrians doing what they always do, which was, you know, planning to, to launch an airstrike on some jihadi, you know, uh, stronghold or something. So it was a totally ludicrous, you know, BS statement. But what was interesting after that is that he, he said that. And then immediately after that, no, no other government or military, you know, authority confirmed it or said anything about it. Not the State Department, not the Pentagon, you know, not the CIA. No one came out with any kind of supporting uh, statement. It was only later that the, the, that the Pentagon eventually, or the Department of Defense, well, same thing, did say something about it, kind of um, giving a, well, just kind of a half-hearted um, um, like confirmation that that's what was going on. And then what was it, the day after, or maybe two days later, uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis comes out with his his statement that um, that Assad didn't launch the chemicals, the chemical weapons attack, and that means that that uh, he was afraid of Trump's threat essentially. So Trump, you know, Trump scared Assad into not launching the chemical weapons attack, now, which which was totally ridiculous uh, to start out with. Uh, Joe, do you want to comment on that? Well, yeah, it is absolutely ridiculous. It's all it's all nicely tied up. I mean, I could I could just say I could equally tell you know, put out a press release or say. Uh, something along the lines of, um, you know, there's an elephant that is planning to climb a tree. Uh, and this is very dangerous. And I'm warning the elephant not to climb the tree. I put that out there. I suppose I cut out for all that, did I? <laughs> Just that last bit. So the, so you wait a couple of days and then what happens? And then they ask, did anybody see an elephant climbing a tree? No. Right. Well, then that's because he took my he took my advice. That elephant. I, he's yeah, so intimidated. He scared me. He scared that elephant. Hmm. Right. But it's absolutely it is ludicrous because I mean, if you imagine you're in the position of of Assad right now, uh, after years and years, like going back to Iraq 2003, chemical weapons and that being seen as being used to justify the invasion of a country and everything that has happened uh, since then in Syria, uh, would you? <laughs> Would you even think about using a chemical weapon? No. Right. Any would any sane person think about it? No. But Joe, he's not sane. He's a I know. Well, that's what you have to believe. You see that suddenly, uh, between between 2002 and now 2002, when he was being fated, he was sane enough in 2002 to be, to be invited for dinner at Buckingham Palace with the Queen. Him and his wife were invited. That's when he was sane. But now, in the interim, you know, ten years, he's gone completely nuts. Has totally lost his reason despite the fact that you can go and look at some videos of him being interviewed and he seems perfectly sane and says perfectly sane things. He's been interviewed by different people. Uh, but apparently we have to believe he's a complete nutcase. And despite the fact that anybody 
and his everybody and his dog and his pet monkey knows that you do not use chemical weapons in the current you know give give your enemies who want to kill you give them just reason to kill you unless you want to die unless you want to shoot yourself or cut your own head off or chop your legs off or something unless you're that way insane then do not use chemical weapons i know even but all he's too crazy to do that. that right so he's he's too crazy He's too crazy to, to, to realize that. He's just going to go ahead. And so the whole thing is just so inane. Who are they convincing? I, I seriously doubt that even the dumbest person in America would believe this bullshit. So who are they talking to? <clears throat> I think they're talking um, to themselves. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's an echo chamber, you know, and it's nonsense, you know. I mean, I, I leave open the possibility that um, that – uh, this was kind of like just bluster again in a certain sense because of the um, in the same way that the uh, the shock cruise missiles at the Sherrod Air Base was uh, just a kind of expensive fireworks display a big has done in the past when given that opportunity and, and having built up this kind of a uh, he used chemical weapons. He killed babies. It's terrible. And do all the emotional stuff in front of the cameras about dead babies and stuff. That is uh, the time, in you know, historically speaking, or in terms of precedent, that is when America then launches a serious attack that does at least something against the people that they're that they're persecuting. Um, in this case, they did absolutely nothing except produce a nice fireworks display. Uh, so that was very strange to me and suggested that there was something else going on. I mean, there's two possible, as I can see, two possible explanations. One is that Trump was simply not interested in going that far and is kind of does not, has a kind of heart in a certain sense and doesn't want to, you know, uh, just go, um, go with the nuclear option against, against Syria as probably Hillary would have. Uh, or they're prevented from doing that by the anti-aircraft or anti-missile infrastructure in Syria. They're prevented from sending 800 Tomahawk cruise missiles into Syria, uh, and, and, and in the sense of it being a turkey shoot, and they would achieve their objectives. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder what the well. If you look at the the Mattis statement that he came out with, it seemed to me almost to be um, like him going along with the story, to, but to an extent that it doesn't go any further, because he didn't have to make that statement. Um, he could have just not said anything and wait for, you know, what everyone was expecting, the next mm. Assad chemical weapon attack, which would have been another, you know, another fake. But he came out with this statement that Assad didn't do anything and therefore Trump, you know, is an effective president, essentially. And that kind of just bookended the conversation. So um, I, I get the impression that this was all uh, just basically a PR move. Right, kind of, kind of like the PR, kind of like the Tomahawk missile attack, but even, even less, um, you know, extreme than that to the extent that they didn't have, they didn't even have to do anything, because Trump, you know, Trump mm-hmm. gives the warning, and then Mattis says, "Okay, Assad, listen to the warning." End of story. Right? We don't have to think about it anymore. Right. That's the impression I got with it. Right. But like Ilan had said earlier, that it's a various, it's a very dangerous game to play, because by making that statement, then the, then all the rebel groups on the ground, all the jihadis now have an excuse to use the chemical weapons that everyone knows they already do have and everyone knows they already have used on numerous occasions. Mm. Yeah. Well, Neil was kind of chopping in and out there a bit, but I, I think I got the, the gist of it, that it's now they get to test uh, you know, the Russian response, basically. Um, one thing on that is that the, the Americans have already been doing that. 
in a sense, because they they the message that the Russians basically said was that any planes flying west of the Euphrates River will be considered targets. Now, what happened is just a couple days after that, the the Americans uh, they launched or the, they 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 carried out several airstrikes, you know, east of the Euphrates where they have usually been doing it, and in Raqqa, and um, but they launched one series of strikes near. Um, it was either near El Palmira or Deir Azur, and it was against ISIS. So, and they were successful strikes apparently, and the Russians didn't do anything. So it was almost as if the Americans were saying, "Okay, well we're going to be tracked as targets. Let's see, let's see how serious the Americans are. What if we, you know, drop some bombs on ISIS? Will they stop us then? Uh, well, they didn't. So it seems like the Americans got that out of it, uh, you know, or got a response from that little test that okay, well the the Russians aren't." Um, you know they're not just going to shoot us out of the air for any reason, mm-hmm. um, and but they so they're kind of inching their way back so so that they can again fly over and it, it's kind of like you know you get your foot through the door. That's the way I saw that happening. Um, but again, it's a it's a very it's I wouldn't say it's at the level of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it's the same kind of dynamic of you know testing boundaries and with the potential for something big to happen. Because if the now the, the Russians don't make idle threats and they didn't make a direct threat, like they didn't say we're going to shoot you down, but it that's kind of what it amounts to. Because uh, like on the ground or in the air, let's say, when if you actually look at what's going on in these situations, what happens is you've you've got let's say an American pilot flying in Syri- Syrian territory. He knows he's there illegally. Um, and he knows, well, first of all, he knows that the Russians may be targeting him. Um, now, when he's flying, what he'll see is that once, once he passes a certain, uh, location, his, his, like, anti, well, I don't know the names for all the technology, but basically his radar detector or his, uh, the instrumentation in his plane will tell him that he is being targeted by, uh, enemy radar, uh, and potentially enemy missiles. And he can't tell until the missile hits him whether that missile has been launched. It could have been launched from far away. It could have been launched from close by. He might have within four minutes before his plane is destroyed. And that, so that's the situation for any actual pilot in the air at that moment. And you can imagine that it would be um, pretty stressful because, um, I mean, we have to assume that the, the Russians had their anti-air systems up and ready after they said that they would. So that means that any pilot flying would be experiencing that, um, you know, while he's flying. And um, so it's it's kind of a pilot in that situation is in, in is in a situation where they don't know whether their plane is going to be uh, shut out of the air in a matter of seconds. And well, just so that's just to give an idea of of. You know what would actually what what is and has been actually happening over the air in Syria. Oh, we seem to have lost them for a moment. Well, I think we heard what he was saying. It was just very slow. He basically said he didn't think that the the jihadis had very effective chemical weapons. Um, if that's if that was his main point, I think that the well mm-hmm. the, that is true. Um, in the sense that they wouldn't be able to launch any kind of major attack, what they would be able to do is is launch a very minor attack and then blow it way out of proportion. Um, 
or if, uh, you know, if there's a CIA or, uh, or kind of deep state rat line running out of Jordan, uh, they could, they could seize it as an opportunity and, and, uh, kind of marshal all their resources to scrounge up whatever they could if they were determined enough. But I guess that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, I, I did think we should discuss for just a moment the, uh, what's going on in the Golan Heights. Yeah. Because, uh, the Golan Heights, um, is a region in Southern Syria that was, um, that's been occupied by Israel since I think it was the 1967 war. And, uh, what we're seeing right now, uh, is a kind of an escalate, kind of, it is an escalation, uh, in Israel's participation, direct participation in, in the war in Syria. Um, we've gotten a few stories in the past few weeks. Uh, one of them, uh, included a, an airstrike on serious Syrian army positions in the Golan Heights. Um, the Syrians are fighting Al Qaeda um, positions, and uh, basically, uh, Israel has been providing air support uh, in in the form of attacking um, the Syrian Arab army uh, on a couple of occasions, and um, it always just seems to be. Uh, well, one, they're, they're, they're striking the Syrian Arab army from its positions in the Golan Heights. It has a, a, a six mile buffer zone into Syria that Israel controls. And so anytime a missile or, or some ordinance gets lobbed into this area, uh, attacking Al Qaeda or the, uh, um, or other groups, that are aligned with them, uh, Israel shoots a missile back and says, you know, we don't care what, why it was shot or who it was shot at. We're going to defend ourselves. So we're basically seeing Israel itching for a justification to ratch up its, uh, its aggression towards the Syrian Arab army and, and, and possibly escalate things further and, and draw other forces in, in Israel's defense. Um, there was another story recently where, um, according to the Syrian Arab army sources, Israeli drones were flying over a region called Al-Bath. Uh, and the pro-government sources claimed that Israel's, Israel's strike came after Syrian artillery units targeted a meeting that included Israeli intelligence officers the Free Syrian Army and uh, other commanders in uh, the old Quinitra city. Uh, they further say that the sources from the Syrian Arab Army confirmed the bombing of a meeting between um, these groups, the commanders in the city, and confirmed that Israeli ambulances entered and evacuated a number of the wounded. Uh, but they didn't confirm the presence of um, Israeli intelligence officers in the meeting, after all. Um, so uh, things are escalating. I, I think um, I think about two weeks ago, uh, an, a Syrian army jet was blown out of the sky, um, and its pilot was um, ejected. 
Um, well, that was the that wasn't the Israelis though. Was right? that, was that no, that was say? that was the American one. The the, the Americans uh, that was in you know around um, what's it called El Tanf I think near Raqqa. That was the one that or no no Tabka I think. Well, I can't remember. But anyways, the the Syrians had said that they were launching an attack on ISIS, mm-hmm. and from looking at the maps and what was going on, that looked to be the case. The 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 Americans said that the the Syrians were attacking the SDF. In this region, which they weren't, and so they uh, took down this plane, and then the pilot, uh, you know, ejected and eventually was saved. But um, no, I don't think that the the Israelis have shot down any Syrian jets recently. But you mentioned a couple incidents. It's been almost every day this week, and I think several times last week too, that the, that the Israelis have launched attacks on the Syrian army. And what this essentially is, um, there's a guy online I can't remember. If it might have been Elijah Magnier or, or Moon of Alabama, they, Moon of Alabama often quotes this guy, but they, he basically described it as um, Al Qaeda's method of calling in Israeli air support in the Golan Heights <clears throat> is that they lob a few, you know, mortars ac- across the, uh, you know, the buffer zone or into the buffer zone, and then Israel says, oh. Syria is attacking us and, you know, attacks the Syrian army. So there's not even any evidence that, that the munitions that are going into the Golan Heights are coming from the Syrians. Syria. It, it could just as well be and is more likely to be the, the jihadis, um, you know, just lobbing a few harmless munitions, uh, you know, behind their backs and then getting Israeli air support. So that's probably what's going on. And... Israel had the gall like this morning or late last night to say that basically Syria has to respect Israel's border and any attack on Israel's border will be, you know, seen as a sign of aggression. <laughs> Never mentioning the fact that it's not their border, mm-hmm. that they're on occupied Syrian territory and international international law um, and like the UN, ev- pretty much every country except the US and maybe Micronesia accepts that Golan is Syrian territory. It is not Israeli. Israel has no right to be there. Syria has every right to be there. And so the the idea, I mean, it's just typical Israeli arrogance. These guys are like the most arrogant people on the planet. They, they occupy Syrian territory and then attack the Syrian army for basically fighting and killing these jihadis. Which you'd think that these that the Israelis would like, right? Because because mm-hmm. Israelis hate terrorists. They hate they hate Arab terrorists. I mean, they've they've been battling Isra- uh, Palestinian terrorists the entire time of their existence. So what's the big deal? Well, well, well they're very. The, the, the thing is, the, these particular terrorists are very polite. Yeah, I, I mean, they you know, according to the former Israeli defense minister, they even apologize when they do, in fact happened to lob something accidentally uh, mm-hmm. into Israel's territory. He came out and said this. So that begs the question, what type of power or respect has Israel been able to and why um, to uh, to invoke out of these terrorists? How have they managed to do this um, when, by all accounts, they, they're, they're the biggest infidels on the planet? Well, if if you guys take over Syria and promise not to fight us, then we'll give you anything you need. That seems to be what's going on here. No. <laughs> and there, there, I read another story yesterday. Um, the leader of one of these, you know, southern Syrian rebel groups had 
told some media that without Israel, they would have been gone, you know, defeated a long time ago. They're, they're so thankful to Israel for all the support that they've been getting from them, <laughs> which was, I, I just thought that was gold. Um, well, hilarious, really. Well, not, not funny, hilarious, but, uh, what else about, about Syria and Israel? Um, well, just the fact that, that this has been going on almost every day straight for like the past two weeks. And, um, which is just, this is another one of those ludicrous kind of absurd, bizarro land situations where the Syrian army is engaged in, you know, a major fight with Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. You remember those guys, right? Al Qaeda. Didn't they have something to do with 9-11? Well, yeah, apparently. But these, you know, the big bad guys, you know, Ayman al Zawahiri, Osama bin Laden, Zarqawi. I mean, everyone should remember these names. These are these are the the the, uh, um, the descendants, let's say, of those major big names that are fighting the Syrians along the Golan Heights, and Israel is supporting them every step of the way. The jihadists, that is. So just something to consider. And um, it's just, I, well, it's easy to believe, but at the same time, it's just, it's so amazing that it goes on and no one talks about it. No. Even though people are talking about it. It's just like the Seymour Hersh story, where it's a huge story. You know, it's it's kind of all over the place now. He's done a ton of interviews on it. And you won't read a thing about it in any of the, the U.S. mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Um, and why not? You'd think that they would because they're so anti-Trump. Because, I mean, the Seymour Hersh piece was essentially an anti-Trump piece. He, he was basically saying that the president, uh, Trump, knew this, received intelligence saying that there was no chemical attack and decided to go ahead with this Tomahawk missile launch anyways because, because of the, the dead babies, because he saw the pictures. Well, I wonder if one of the reasons why it's not being discussed is because it would set up a precedent for for um, for thinking about mm-hmm. accusing Syria of uh, chemically attacking its people and being wrong about it. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have to think back uh, to 2013 and, and Barack Obama's red line. And you'd have to think, you, period. <laughs> yes. It would introduce a, a chaotic uh, element to the whole narrative of, of blaming other countries for, mm-hmm. for, for killing their own people and then, uh, and then declaring out of humanitarian care that they're, that the Americans are going, going to go in and, and bomb the shit out of everybody in order to save these people. Yeah. It's a total no go zone. Right. And that's why there are certain stories that just never get covered, no matter how public they are, no matter how otherwise well known they are. Because the second you mention it, it's like, it's again that that boundary issue. It's putting your foot in the door. As soon as you got one one toe through the door, the potential is that the whole foot will get through the door, and then potentially the whole person will get through the door. So the second you mention, the the second you even consider the idea that the Syrians were blamed for something that didn't happen and, and got attacked for it or almost got attacked for it, or the fact just the fact that they that they were blamed for something that they didn't do. As soon as people get that idea, mm-hmm. like you said, that opens the possibility of looking back in history and also that it might happen again, because then the next time it happens, they have to consider that possibility. Yes. And then they have to put it in their articles and write about it and come up with a good reason for why it's wrong, which will be a totally bad reason because it'll be just so obvious that this is the, the, the narrative that's trying to be spun. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's, it's, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, basically. And so that's why you can't hear about it. And it leads to really funny things. It leads to absurdities because if you, there, there was a, a clip of the, uh, the RT correspondent at, I believe it was the State Department. I can't remember the new, like, spokesman, spokesperson that they've got. Um, she's blonde. I don't, I didn't really mm-hmm. recognize her. I can't remember her name because this is the first time I'd actually seen, um, one of these press conferences. But he basically asked her, well, you know, you, about the Spicer thing, you've said that uh, the Syrians are planning this attack. Well, aren't you, cons- aren't you concerned that the jihadis who have chemical weapons might launch an attack and then it, it'll then be blamed on the Syrians? And she just says, no. <clears throat> like with this really like arrogant, almost laugh to it, like, no. Like, why would we even consider something like that? And he's, and he's just like, well, how can you respond to that? It's like, are, are you an idiot? It's like, are, are you mentally deranged? Like, are, does your brain just not work? Just think it through. Like, okay, uh, consider the possibility. We know that the jihadis have terrorists. Okay, yeah. I mean, have chemical weapons. Yeah, we do. Well, aren't you concerned that they might launch an attack? Nope. How can you even ask that question? It's, it's ridiculous. It's, no, you're ridiculous and you're, you're a total moron. Well, no, you're just a liar because you know that the, you know, the question is legitimate. You know that it's an issue, but you know that you can't even say it. But you know what? They can't, it's not that they can't, it's not that they only, uh, can't even say it. They're not allowed to think it. It's not part yeah. of the, you know, there are, there are little tracks in the brain that, that they're paid to, uh, to, to put a wall on. Uh, and uh, th- this has been described in some recent articles on SOT where, you know, you have there, there is a, an acceptable um, there are acceptable parameters of discussion and uh, and lines of inquiry in Washington and in the media. And then there there are some unacceptable ones. Mm-hmm. And you're um, the, the prison of the of the mind of the U.S. public and the West is is kind of fortified by them not even entertaining, not even thinking, not even allowing themselves to to uh, consider other possibilities. Uh, and they enforce this line of thinking or line of non-thinking on everybody with uh, with such responses. Uh, no, you know, so um, and and to answer your your question a moment ago, uh like, why isn't anybody questioning Israel's behavior in the Golan Heights, uh, attacking a, a government that and a, and a military that's uh, fighting for its very life against quite possibly the worst terrorist elements uh, we have ever seen? I mean, it, it sort of makes what we've seen in Afghanistan in, in the 80s, uh, it, it almost dwarfs it by comparison. I don't know. Um, Nobody questions it. I guess everybody's afraid that if they did, they'd be they'd be called anti-Semites uh, or anti-Israel or 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 self-hating Jews or or something of the sort. Yeah, I don't even know if they're Jewish. Well, there's. Well, I'm, I'm going to try to organize my thoughts on this one because, on the one hand, what they would say is something like Moshe Yalon said which was basically that Syria was a bigger problem than ISIS or than any of these terror groups. Now, if you just take that at face value, they're probably right, um, because an organized um, and um, stable state 
is probably a bigger, let's say, military or political threat to Israel, for example, than a bunch of, you know, chaotic ragtag terrorists that, uh, you know, can't really do anything very effectively um, state-wise. I mean, if you look at the Islamic State, um, they, they, you know, pretend to be a real country, and they've been at war their entire existence and are rapidly losing territory now. Now, if they had been managed to kind of um, solidify their their stronghold on Syria and Iraq, they'd still be at war. You know, they'd, it would still it wouldn't be like suddenly they're internationally recognized and stu- suddenly you know the Americans and everyone else stops fighting them. Um, it even if it carried on indefinitely um, as kind of just a token war, it would still be totally it would still be a chaotic situation mm-hmm. for for the you know the entire duration. So they've got a point there, and that's always been the the justification for dealing with unsavory elements like the you know the, and the, like the CIA with with drug drug lords and cartels and uh, and all these death squads. It's always well, we got to deal with nasty people in order to do good work. Like sometimes you just if you're if you're down in the muck, you got to deal with it. And it's the same justification between, for the FBI um, with their informants. It's like. When you're in a situation like that, you have to deal with nasty people in order to get things done. And that's the initial justification that if you look at individual situations is you say, well, yeah, in that situation, you kind of did have to have this, you know, shady informant in order to infiltrate this organization and do all this stuff. And but it's that kind of, again, that foot in the door that just makes things easy to spiral out of control down uh, down the line. So you've just established and established a precedent for working with nasty people. And then you do it for, you know the next hundred years and you end up sponsoring huge terrorist organizations. So th- I, I think that might be the, the justification, the rationalization that, um, you know, certain Israelis might think, for example, mm-hmm. that, well, Assad is a bigger threat than the jihadis. So we're going to, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, at least temporarily. Um, you know, that doesn't mean we won't turn on these jihadis eventually. Um, Cause we could, if they ever try anything, so that might be just the kind of thought process that's going on. Um, but again, it's one of those situations and dynamics that you can't talk about because once you admit it publicly, it's, it, you lose face. Now, you, you know, Israel, the, who, who has been made the biggest stink about Islamic terrorism for the, you know, the past however many decades is now supporting terrorists. Well, it, it's bad optics. It's bad PR. You just can't go there. Right. So. But then on the other hand, what everyone's missing is that Islamic State, you know, despite everything else, is a big threat. I'm talking about a big threat in the ponderological sense that these that these guys are, you know, a a ponderogenic group of, of pathologicals whose influence, you know, can spread anywhere to whoever responds to that call. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, that's very dangerous. Um, ponderology is all about that and just how dangerous it can be. And how dangerous it is. But the thing is, is that all these people in positions of authority and responsibility don't see that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. They're, they're all, they're totally blind to it. They can't even, they can't think that much. Like if, if you think about these, all these, you know, CIA spooks and foreign policy wonks and all these, um, you know, people involved in this kind of thing, they, they can't think like that. No, because um, and you can even you can get an idea of how these guys think. Um, it helps to just you know read books and histories about about the the, the characters involved and what and how they approach these situations. 
like there, I'm reading a book. I've been reading it for a while. It's a long book on the history of the, the CIA in, in Afghanistan. It's called, uh, Ghost Wars by Stephen Cole. And, you know, so he, he's interviewed a ton of these people. He's interviewed, you know, CIA people, uh, Pakistanis, people in Pakistani intelligence, Afghan warlords. Like he's interviewed anyone that he could find that was involved in any of this kind of stuff. He's read all the documents, um, you know, all the memoirs, et cetera. And just to use one example, just to give uh, kind of a case study, if you look at a guy like Bill Casey, um, who was head of the CIA uh, for a time in the 80s and who was head of the CIA when the CIA really upped their <clears throat> their involvement in the covert operations there and their support for the Mujahideen. And if you look at Casey, Casey was a staunch, like almost fanatical Catholic, went to church every day, <clears throat> would like try to get his friend, you know, try to convert his friends like he was a man of God. <laughs> And, uh, you know, everyone that knew him just said that, you know, just how, how serious he was about his, his Catholic faith, right? Mm-hmm. And so just hearing that, you, you know, you might get an image of a guy, but he was totally on board for supporting the radical jihadis because he saw them, you know, one as like, as like freedom fighters. And, and, you know, with no kind of, no like psychological understanding of what's going on, he just knew that these guys were, were anti-communist mm-hmm. and the communists were godless. Uh, freaks, you know, that had to be eradicated. So, so we should support these, these freedom fighters. They may be primitive, you know, they, they're just primitive Arabs, but, or Central Asians, but, but we should support them for, you know, for their struggle against the, the godless commies. And that's probably, well, I, I, I'd, I'd be willing to bet that that was the extent of his kind of psychological grasp of the situation. Because, mm-hmm. People like that, most people, they have no idea of, um, you know, psychopathy, being able to, you know, see those kind of gradations in, in psychological normality and the consequences of dealing with these kinds of people. They're totally blind to that. So all the, all they see are these guys willing to fight and die against the godless commies. And that's just like any American soldier, right? Because our American troops, right? They're, they're willing to fight and die for what they believe in, for their freedom. That's the extent of, of the way they see these people. Yeah, they might, uh, yeah, these, uh, you know, Afghan freedom fighters might, uh, be really brutal, but, you know, that's just war, mm-hmm. right? So that's, it's, it's all kind of rationalized and seen in this. Well, the living field, the, the, the playing field kind of gets leveled where all you see are the similarities. So you see these Afghan freedom fighters and they're just doing what we do, right? And you, you can't, you can't see the ponderogenic element. You can't see the kind of infection, the, the, the sickness in a, in a movement like that. So none of these guys could actually, I think, um, you know, unless there's a few that were just really bright and really with, you know, uh, a really deep kind of psychological knowledge and ability to see into, like, to, to test out the future and see possibilities. I don't think any of these guys <clears throat> could tell you know, could predict what would happen in 30 years, where this would go, no. what these guys would turn into. But if they had that kind of insight from the beginning, it would be totally obvious. I mean, because whenever you support uh, a radical um, revolutionary group that's going to war with, you know, any kind of ruling structure or whatever, you're <laughs> that's going to bring out the pathologicals. Those pathologicals are going to rise to the top, which is exactly what happened in Afghanistan. The most ruthless, bloodthirsty psychopaths ended up being the, the top mujahideen and 
Um, and all, you know, all the Americans can see, all the CIA guys can see from this is that, oh, you know, these guys may be, may be rough guys, but they're getting the job done. And that's all that matters to them. Mm-hmm. So, so bringing this back to Israel, Israel, um, and, you know, whoever is watching this situation from, um, from a, a position of support for Israel, they, they can rationalize it and they can see it from the perspective of, well, we're just supporting the lesser evil and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And this, this works tactically for us at this moment. Um, you know, it, it fulfills our objectives. And from that, sen- from that sense, yeah, Assad is the bigger threat because he's got a, you know, he's actually got a military, uh, a trained military, mm-hmm. um, with all the, all the technology that comes along with that. Now he's got Russian weapons. So yeah, Assad is the bigger threat to Israel. But the bigger threat to humanity and to like the psychological well-being of the entire, you know, world and especially, you know, in the, in, in the Middle East, like in Syria and Iraq, the big threat is these ISIS guys. And, but the, you know, all these people, the Israelis, the Americans, they just can't see it. No. Uh, there, there's a, uh, there's a philosophy of the ends justify the means. Mm-hmm. And that means that, uh, in order to achieve this short-term objective, whatever it is, whether it's to prop up a warlord or to overthrow a government or to destabilize a, a whole society, uh, if it, if it means that the U.S. interests, if it's corporations, uh, if it's intelligence agencies, uh, if it's Wall Street backers are in a better position afterward, um, if they're able to uh, because it's basically rape. It's basically economic, uh, rape of, of, of these nations that we, that we see in all of these wars. Um, and that, that seems to be the guiding light. The ends justify the means. Um, you know, it, it's a very rare thing. Uh, you talked about William Colby, um, previously, on, oh, was it Colby or Casey? I can't oh, remember. Casey. Well, I said Casey, but I can't remember if it was Colby or Casey now that I think about it. I think it was Casey, but. Well, you're going to help me with a name right now. Is it Philip Agee, who's a former CIA yeah. guy? Yeah. So in, in very rare instances, uh, we've had insights from CIA agents who have participated in destabilization efforts and who, after a few years, have come out and said, my God, you know, what, what I did, uh, in the name of, you know, freedom and democracy was, was very wrong and destructive. And, um, you know, when I, uh, when I planned these, uh, these acts of sabotage with, uh, opposition groups within the country who were on the payroll or, or who believed that, uh, the current government was no good because of its socialist sympathies, uh, when I did all that and I, I basically staved off the flow of food to a part of the country or, or created some other element of, uh, of chaos within the country, this was pretty darn bad. And I was good at it. I thought what I was doing was correct, but then I started questioning it. In any case, that's a very kind of rare and special thing to hear, uh, because the, 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 the ponderogenic forces that, that act on uh, these individuals, um, you know, they're given commendation, they're given freedom of movement. 
They feel like they're actually doing something. They're being told that they're doing uh, good things. Uh, these are very strong forces, even if that person is not necessarily uh, nuts to begin with. They become uh, pathologized. Um, so, you know, the, the, I'm glad you brought up uh, ponderology in this because um, – Again and again, you know, we're hearing stories. It's it's amazing to me to hear about, you know, a man from Ohio who comes back from Syria, uh, who who went there to fight with ISIS and, and then comes back and is arrested. Or, you know, all of these Europeans and people from Canada actually buying into it, uh, reading something that makes them feel like they can be empowered to to do something. Um, that's that's put in a positive light when when it's in reality it's the most destructive thing that they can probably put the, their lives to. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, Israel is extremely short-sighted. Um, uh, getting back to that for a moment, we recently heard of a statement. Um, I don't know if it was from Moshe Yalon or um, or another uh, former prime minister who came out and said that Netanyahu is just straight-up fascist and and taking yeah, Israel down the dark path. That was Yellon. It was Yellon. Well, you know, uh, Israel and the U.S. are on a, a kind of um, self-fulfilling path of destruction. Uh, that, that's what it is. And Saudi Arabia and 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 some of these other allied nations, uh, they 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 can't or refuse to see how what they're doing uh, is just kind of making things worse for themselves. Um, and it's an incredible history lesson. Uh, it's incredible to have this kind of um, this this kind of seat uh, in viewing history the way we are um because it's not just one nation it's 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 a group of nations that's that's kind of tied together by their uh pathological agreements um yeah yeah well i don't know if there's anything more to say about that mm-hmm. but um in lieu of ending the show Maybe we can just briefly talk about one other story in our in our show summary, and that is the Grenfell Tower fire mm-hmm. in London. So that because it's it, I mean it's been a big story. It's big in the news for what the past almost two weeks now. I think. Um, well, basically this, this apartment block just went up in flames. Um, a whole bunch of people died, and it has kind of um, spiraled into this big political thing because, um, you know, the, the fire, um, you know, the, the supposedly fire protective materials used in the outer construction turned out to not be up to specs, to actually be flam- inflammable. And um, just the fact that this, this entire apartment block went up into flames and that, well, officially something like 79 people have died, um, but even there, there is cause for controversy because some of the tenants 
and um, just people involved in the case are saying that the gov- there's basically a cover-up going on. The government isn't releasing accurate figures. Um, some people are estimating that up to 600 people could have died. Um, we just don't know. Um, the government won't release the you know an accurate number of people missing, presumably because they're afraid if people knew there'd be an, an even bigger outcry over it because so many people died in this in this tragedy that shouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. And so there are protests, um, you know, residents or tenants are being blocked out of kind of town meetings about it. Um, soon after the, the government did all kinds of tests for other buildings and found just, you know, tons of these apartment buildings that are um, not up to code and there are fire risks. Some were, um, several of them were recommended to be evacuated um, because of the fire risk. Some of that, some were actually evacuated, um, and there have been two additional fires, I believe, in apartment blocks in the in the like in the in the week since. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, not as bad. Um, um, haven't you know they haven't been huge stories, but uh, um, so when you when you fit all this, it well, it, the, the timing just gets to me because there's this election right where Theresa May does wins, you know. Nominally, but not a very graceful or um, strong and stable win. Um, you know, her her government is uh, shaky at best, and Corbyn is just um, getting more and more popular. Um, I mean, he was he was essentially a starring act at the Glastonbury Music Festival mm-hmm. um, just by showing up and saying a few words on stage. Of course, the crowd, uh, you know, cheers. Uh, you know, oh, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, to the White Stripes tune, which is a thing now. And uh, I just got a, a message from Neil saying that the Tory DUP coalition of chaos won't hold. New, ele- new election within a year, Corbyn to win. Um, Corbyn himself made a, a, a kind of half joke that it would be six months. So, so we'll see, we'll see uh, if he's if he's accurate. Um, well, j- just to get back to a point you made, you know. One of the crucial facts that came out of the uh, the Grenfell building fire was the fact that um, they could have, for a few dollars more, basically, per shingle or sheet, um, have made this place more fire resistant. So, and this wasn't, um, you know, this was an ongoing concern that residents of this building had voiced for years. Uh, so it basically reveal, reveals the greed and the indifference and the apathy uh, that the that the English government kind of bureaucracy in place there uh, has towards people's well-being, uh, and it couldn't be more apparent or obvious with this with this tragedy. Um, so you have that uh, people are in an uproar. Um, and just following that, uh, there was, I mean, like you said, it, it, it's like one big reveal after another about the, the, the state of English governance. Uh, there was a vote, um, by the Tories to take, a, I think, a, a billion, uh, dollars in euros, a billion euros and support this, uh, DUP group that they're in coalition with. As opposed to, uh, giving firefighters and, and other, 
um, civil servants there was a, a raise. There was a good a good meme I saw on on Twitter. Um, you know, uh, nurse has conversation with Theresa May about you know not not making enough money. Marie, Theresa May says, "Well, you know, there's no money tree." You know, and then a month later. Oh, DUP, here's a billion euros for you to sh- shore up my government. It's like, well, where'd you get that money? Why didn't you put it to some other better use? There is a money tree when it's, you know, advantageous to the politicians involved. That's just the way it works. Yeah. So, so we're really seeing some very obvious and, um, uh, uh kind of acts on the part of, uh, the, the Tories that reveal you know, what they're really motivated by and, um, and people aren't having it anymore. Uh, you know, the, it, there's, there's been a kind of a, a raising of consciousness just in these past couple of months. Um, and, uh, and that's a good thing. Yeah. And just one more observation about this Grenfell thing right after it happened, both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn went to, to the location. And Theresa May visited with the first responders. There might have even been a fence so that she didn't have to deal with any of the uh, rabble. <laughs> but in, in any case, she didn't talk with any of the residents. She just talked with the firefighters, first responders type people. Jeremy Corbyn actually went and talked to people. Mm-hmm. You know, and that that's just... Human. Well, it's human. But if, you know, you, Theresa May really must be a robot because... I mean, just what must go through like her mind or her PR people's mind before this kind of thing? I mean, it's not rocket science. If you're going to be a phony, fake politician, at least be a good, phony, fake politician and pretend to care, you know, about the people that you're ruling over, you know, but but Theresa May won't even, can't even do that. It's like she's incapable of any kind of human thought or feeling or interaction for Jeremy Corman, it just comes naturally, probably because he is just a real human being, unlike Theresa May. And it, it's it's unfortunate this that this tragedy happened. Um, but one of the one of the the results of it is that people are even more supportive of Jeremy Corbyn and even more aware of him because this is the kind of thing that that he's been talking about for for years. Like this is these are the kind of changes that he would have made and that he's, you know, promises to make in the future. I mean, more money for the things that actually matter mm-hmm. and less money for the things that don't. And so, I mean, that's why, yeah, he's probably right. Neil's probably right that, uh, you know, he's, he's set to win, you know, when the next election comes, because I mean, aside from a bunch of, you know, crotchety old, Brits that don't go on the internet to, or to Glastonbury to show their support. The, the only support for, for Theresa May is, you know, the people that, uh, you know, are kind of set in their ways and don't really have any idea of what's actually going on. And yeah, how's that to end the show? Sounds good. Okay. So we're going to end it there, folks. We'll be back next week with another show. Probably, well, we'll just leave you hanging on what we're going to be talking about. Not because we don't know what we're going to be talking about. Well, maybe, but uh, <laughs> we just have to wait and see. So, everyone, take care. Thanks to uh, Joe and Neil. Too bad we lost them. Going to have to figure out what's going on with this Internet connection. Um, and thanks to my co-host, Ilan, as well. Everyone, take care. 
And we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Take care now.